Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crossroads. My name's Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you come out as we're continuing in this series. I'm so excited about this series, Multiply, as we're looking together at the book of Acts to learn from the early church, how did they begin to carry out the great mission that Jesus has given them and you and me? Because that mission was for us, too, to go and make disciples in all the world, to make followers of Christ. And so we're going to learn from the early church, the book of Acts. I hope you've been reading along in the uh, acts with us. We're asking you to read a chapter a day. Your reading assignment for each week is at the bottom of your outline. This week we're on uh, chapters 8 through 14. Just read one chapter a day. It's a great story. And we want you to kind of get a, a picture of the whole book of Acts. And then also we're encouraging you to get into a small group, one of our life groups, because we believe life change happens best in small groups. And you can sit around in a group and build some friendships. And you can study uh, these topics a little more. You can look at some more passages and things we can't get into during the weekend service. You can dig in a little more. And so I encourage you to go on the website and sign up or mark your card and we'll help connect you with a group. Now, the series is called Multiply because we know God wants to multiply the followers. He wants to multiply his family. And so today uh, we're going to be looking at proof of the resurrection Last week we looked at the the power of the Holy Spirit and how God empowers us and helps us. When you open up your life to Christ, God sends His Spirit to dwell in you, begins to direct you, guide you, change you, grow you as you surrender to Him. And this week is the, the proof of the resurrection. And you know, it's just funny to me how often I will read something or hear something or someone will say something to me or I'll hear, hear a message and it's just what I need at that moment in time. Have you ever experienced that? Like, you know, it's like, wow, I really needed that. And last week we talked about, you know, the, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I need the Holy Spirit every day. I'm aware of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, in preparing that message, it made me ultra aware of the Holy Spirit and His presence. And let me just tell you, this was the week. This past week, I needed the Holy Spirit more than usual. I faced some really uh, big challenges, a tough week. Uh, right in the middle of the week, we had some meetings with the general contractor. They were a little uncomfortable. It's kind of a normal things in building process, but we had to work some things out. We had to prepare for that meeting. We had a big meeting. We had to follow up on that meeting. But the meeting itself was over three hours of intense, you know, kind of negotiate, hash things out and make things clear. And I just got to tell you, on Wednesday by, by 12.15, I was wiped out. I was wiped out. I felt like I had been through the grinder. It was just so draining. I had to weigh every word, be careful of the words I picked and everything I said. But I felt like God had been helping me all along. But I go, man, God, I'm not through yet. I'm not going to be done today until nine o'clock, nine o'clock that evening. I need your help. You know, I kind of gutted it through the afternoon, but I just felt God encouraging me, beginning to lift my spirits. And one evening, I went over to Ohlone, the, the career center there, asked us to help teach a leadership class. So we have an opportunity to make some new friends, hopefully share Christ down the road. And so there I am, and, and man, I just got energized. God helped me. And I went home that night, and I felt so good. Thank you, God, for showing up. I just felt your spirit with me today. And then, I know I'm going to be tired tomorrow, God, but please help me. Please help me. You know, Thursday came around... I felt more energetic than usual. I felt like I was just back from a couple days away of, you know, like at a spa vacation. I felt so good. And God's just been helping me all week. And he gave me just what I needed. And it just gave me this extra focus on the Holy Spirit and relying on him this week. And I know God's going to give you what you need if you have an open heart and an open mind. And I know God wants to speak to you right where you're at. You know, we're facing a lot of different challenges as a church right now. We have space issues and different things going on we have to wrestle with. Different staff members dealing with their own personal problems and challenges and struggles. And one of the things I've learned in my over 30 years of ministry is when things get hard, you know, not to get surprised. 
You know, when you're trying to do things for God, take new ground, God's getting ready to multiply this church. When you're trying to do things for God, you can expect Satan to kind of turn up the opposition. Now, I don't like problems. I really hate problems. But I've come to learn that God teaches us through those. He grows us and he's up to something. And I believe God's up to something really big right now because we're facing some big challenges. Now, we don't have to live in fear because of what Satan's doing because Jesus said, greater is he who is in you his spirit than he who is in the world. We have God with us. We don't have to live in fear. And so that allows me to live with excitement about what God is doing. And today we're going to look at the heart of the message that Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and share. So I hope you'll take your outline out and follow along with me and take some notes. Um, We're going to look at this idea of why is the resurrection? Have you ever wondered like, why is the resurrection so important? I mean, the important thing to me, I always focus on Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for my sins. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, Paul spelled it out for us in 1 Corinthians. Look what he said. If Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been resurrected, then your faith is useless. Do you underline that phrase with me? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. Your faith is useless. And not only that, you are still guilty of your sins. Now, I just want to stop right there and say, if this is true, if Christ is not resurrected from the dead and I'm still guilty of my sins, help. (laughs) I'm in trouble and you're in trouble because we need, we desperately need forgiveness for our sins. Because of our sins, we're cut off from God. And then Paul goes on to say, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. When we say someone's lost, it just means they don't have a relationship with God. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. And why did Paul say, if what we believe isn't true, why are we to be more pitied? Not only were they believing, if, if it's not true, then they were believing something that wasn't true. That's what they were basing their life on. But not only that, they were suffering intense persecution because of this belief. They were experiencing rejection and beatings, and imprisonment, and death threats. And so they were experiencing all this stuff. He said, if, if this isn't true, then we're to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. But look what he says. This is so important. Circle these three words. But in fact. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And let's remember who wrote this. Paul wrote this. This is Paul, the same Paul who was going around hunting down Christians, dragging them out of homes, taking them in for for these hearings and having them in prison and many of them murdered. This is Paul. He has experienced Christ. But he says, this is so important. And here's why it's important. Just three, you know, our faith is useless without it. And here's here's what the resurrection does for us. Three little fill-ins there on your outline. Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is. If Jesus is raised from the dead, it proves that we can trust him. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said this about himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will not die, uh, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So Jesus made all these amazing claims If they're not true, then we have to decide, was Jesus a liar? Was he just trying to deceive people and get people to follow him? Or did he really believe they were true and he was just crazy? Was he a lunatic? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? 
Or was it true? Was he the Lord? We have to, you know, and the resurrection proves with great power that he is who he said he was. Jesus told his disciples he would be killed and raised to life in three days. Second thing the resurrection does is we can know that our sins are paid for and forgiven. Our sins are paid for and forgiven. You know, God is a holy and just God. And all the things you and I have done wrong. Somebody, the Bible is very clear that we've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned for it. That's what we deserve. That's what we have to pay. Somebody has to pay for our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, those people who had faith in God, the Jewish people, they could come and worship, and God in his grace, he allowed them to sacrifice a perfect animal in their place, to take their place, to symbolically shed the blood of that animal in their place, to pay the price for their sins. But, you know, it wasn't a perfect sacrifice. Every time they would come back to Jerusalem, they would journey home and weeks later come back to Jerusalem. Each time they came, they would have to offer another sacrifice for their sins over and over and over again through the priest. But when Jesus came, the Bible says he was the Lamb of God who was the perfect sacrifice, who could take away our sins once for all because he was a human being. He was God. He was human. He took flesh and he could live and die and take my place in a way that an animal could not do. And he died for us. And so my sins are paid for and forgiven. And then number three, Jesus is alive. He's alive today. The Bible says he's representing us in heaven. In the Old Testament, when they came to worship and they came to the temple, they would bring their sacrifices, but they had to go through the priests. The priests had to offer the sacrifice for them and intercede with them, uh, intercede with them between them and God. But the Bible says Jesus is our high priest. He's doing that for us in heaven right now. So that's great news. Great news. And not only that, he's alive and his spirit is in us. And you know, no other world religion claims to follow a risen God or a risen human being. The Jewish people, they're still waiting on the Messiah or the Savior. They don't believe he's come yet. Now, I studied different world religions in college and then when I was in seminary, and I know a little bit about them. I came across a pretty interesting story about Buddha, when he, when he died, he was supposedly cremated, but they, they were able to gather a few little sh- sh- uh, fragments of bones. And a few hundred years ago, they found some parts that they thought were part of his finger, or said to be part of Buddha's finger, one of the little bones in there and a couple of little shards. And they took it and they gave it to the emperor of China during the Tang Dynasty. So they set up this amazing shrine with all these uh, golden coins and uh, statuary and all that stuff to Buddha there. After a while... Years passed, people forgot about it. In 1981, it was rediscovered, and people were so excited, many people would travel there to see this little, these little bone fragments of Buddha. Now, if someone claims that they have some bone fragments of Jesus, we got a problem, because Jesus didn't die. Let's be clear, Buddha never said he was going to live again. In fact, Buddha wanted to cease to exist. That's what the whole goal is, to cease to exist, this, this wheel of life, this suffering. You want to cease to exist and somehow exist in nirvana in this sense of nothingness. But we're not going to find any bone fragments of Jesus because he's alive. He was resurrected. He had a new body. Now, a, another world religion that many people follow today, Islam. I read a story about an African man. He became a Christian, and his Muslim friends were very upset. And they said, well, why would you do this? And he said, well, put it like this. Suppose you were going down a road and you came to a fork in the road and you didn't know which way to go. And at this fork in the road, there was a dead man and there was a man who was alive. Which man would you ask for directions? That's what he felt. 
So I'm going to follow the one who's alive. You know, Muhammad never claimed to be God, never claimed to be the Messiah, never said he would live again. He didn't, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't make those claims. But Jesus did, and he proved it by the resurrection. And it's so important to understand the difference. Other religions teach that you have to somehow fix yourself. You have to somehow be good enough. You have to be good enough to earn all his favor, his mercy, his forgiveness. They don't know if they've done enough to win his approval. You know, in, in Buddhism or Hinduism, you have to kind of cease striving, cease wanting, see, and you have to keep working on yourself over a course of many lifetimes before you finally get it right. I think the Bible really nails it. The Bible says you and me don't have a chance to fix ourselves. We can't do it. We're helpless on our own. That's why God sent Jesus. And it just makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around the resurrection. I, I get that, man. When people die and we put them in the, in the casket and we put them in the grave, we expect them to stay there, right? Expect them to stay there. You know, it kind of freaks us out when, when, it, when they, they don't stay dead. <laughs> you know, the guy that wrote the Hokey Pokey, he wrote it back in the, the 1940s. His name was Larry LaPrice. He died in 1996 and, you know, everything was going fine until they tried to put him in the casket. It really freaked his family out. You know, they put his left foot in. (laughs) The number one reason, the number one reason, there's a lot of historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ, but the number one reason that I believe that Jesus is alive and that he was raised from the dead is because of the testimony and lives of the people who saw him after the resurrection. They saw him literally here on earth, and the lives of people I see today. So that's what I want to share with you today is the evidence. I believe this is the number one evidence for Jesus' resurrection. So on your outline, look there at number one. How did Jesus' family view him before the resurrection and after the resurrection? I think their view kind of went from loser to Lord. From loser to Lord. And you say, well, why would they think that about him? Well, let me give you a couple examples that the Bible shares with us. You know, Jesus was doing miracles, and he was teaching very powerfully. His fame was growing, and he, he ticked off the religious leaders. They were jealous of him. He called them on their sins. They wanted to kill him, and they were plotting to kill him. And the center of power, you know, the important place to be there was in Judea. That's where Jerusalem was and all the, you know, the big cities. And he was out in Galilee. And his brothers said, you know, there's another religious festival coming up, and they said, this is there on your outline. They said to him, leave here. And go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. See, Jesus wasn't going to, to, um, to Judea yet because he knew it wasn't time for him to die yet. He's going to go there later very intentionally, ready to lay down his life. But it wasn't time yet. They said, you can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. They kind of threw down the challenge. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Can you underline that phrase? Even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, I was thinking about this. Imagine you were growing up, you had a brother or sister who never did anything wrong. They were without sin. It was never their fault. I can't imagine what that would be like. You can ask my sisters. They grew up with me. They might know. But yeah, I can't imagine myself what that would be like. I don't know. Can you imagine? That would be kind of annoying, actually, wouldn't it? I mean, it's always going to be your fault, not theirs, because they're perfect. They do everything just right. You can never measure up. They set the bar so high. 
but his brothers didn't understand or believe who he was. Okay, if you say, well, that's just one example. Maybe they got it later. Look at Mark. It says, Jesus, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. They were so busy. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They wanted to grab him and physically take him away to protect him from himself. Or maybe they were embarrassed. I don't know. Saying he is out of his mind. Can you underline that phrase? He's out of his mind. They couldn't wrap their mind around these claims that he was making about himself. His family thought they didn't believe in him and they thought he was out of his mind. And if you read in the, in the Bible at the crucifixion, we don't read about his family being there other than his mother Mary. Now maybe some were there, but, but when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked down at his mother and she wasn't standing with her other children. She was standing with John, the disciple, and Jesus said to his mother, here is your son. He wanted John to take care of his mother during this traumatic time. And so his brothers weren't there that we see. They weren't at the crucifixion. And I can understand that. I mean, first of all, I mean, crucifixion is just gross. It's it's a terrible way to watch somebody die. It's torture. And who would want to go? You know, people were there cheering and clapping and happy and mocking Jesus. I mean, if that was your brother or your sister, you wouldn't want to go watch them die this painful, terrible, slow death. And you also wouldn't want people to go, look, there's Jesus' brother. Maybe he's part of this conspiracy too. You wouldn't want to be yanked in and pulled into the mix either. And they weren't there. But let's look in Acts. What happens in Acts? This is after the resurrection. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. The Bible says over, over a period of a few days, he appeared to over 500 people. Remember, Jesus said, wait together for, the, for the, God to send the Holy Spirit. There were at least 150 followers of Christ. You know, we always think about the 12 disciples, but there were other disciples who followed along with Jesus, men and women. But there was the inner 12. And they were meeting together. And it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all met together, constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Can you underline that phrase? The brothers of Jesus. They were there. What changed? What happened? They didn't believe in him. They thought he was out of his mind. Not only that, Jesus' next, uh, scholars think James was the next uh, brother after Jesus. He was the oldest, obviously. James. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He became the leader of this first church. He was very influential. And most scholars believe he wrote the book of James. And they do know that he was killed for his faith about 30 years after the resurrection. So he went from not believing in Jesus, thinking that Jesus was out of his mind, to living his life to spread the good news about Jesus and that he was alive. He was willing to die for it. Do you think something, do you think maybe he really saw Jesus after the resurrection? I do. I don't think people are going to change. If, you know, people are willing to die. They're willing to die for a cause or their country or a person they believe in. But if you find out somebody's a liar, they're a fraud, they're crazy, most people aren't going to die for somebody like that. They're not going to die for a person like that, but they were willing to die. God included that little verse there in Acts as part of the proof of the resurrection. The second a group of people I want to look at is the disciples. The disciples, they went from cowering, hiding in fear, to courageous. They went from cowering to courageous. Now, especially Peter. Peter's the main, the main character in the first few chapters of Acts. <clears throat> especially Peter, but the disciples. 
I mean, think about, think about these guys. They were just ordinary, regular people. And uh, I'm so glad that one of the disciples Jesus picked was Peter, because Peter gives me hope. Peter was a little bit of a goofball, right? He's the one who spoke up without thinking. Uh, anybody else have that problem? Uh, have that problem? You know, you blurt out the first thing that comes to mind, and you're kind of impulsive. Peter's the only one who got out of the boat and actually walked on water, so that's kind of cool. Uh, remember one time Jesus was trying to tell the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to be raised to life. And Peter, like, grabbed Jesus, he pulled him over to the side, and the Bible says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Like, don't talk like that. Don't say things like that. Don't, don't be crazy. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Say, you're, you're keeping me from doing the mission that God sent me to do. Peter was very impulsive, you know, in the garden when they were praying. And they came to arrest Jesus. Peter was the one who jumped up and grabbed a sword and sliced off one of the guy's ears. And Jesus stuck it back on with super glue. <laughs> I think it was supernatural glue. Super, he, put it, he healed the guy's ear. And Peter said, oh, I would never deny you. There's no way. And he denied Jesus, right? I mean, he denied Jesus three times. <laughs> And they came and arrested Jesus. And, you know, we kind of look at Peter. Wow, man, you really blew it. You denied him three times. Come on, every one of us in this room, there's been times we were embarrassed about our faith and we kind of downplayed it a little bit. We downplayed how, how committed we were, how serious we were, because we didn't want people to make fun of us or think less of us. And Peter, man, his life was on the line. And most of the disciples ran away. The only two we know that followed Jesus to this fake trial after he was arrested was Peter and John. And they took, took Jesus inside the, the building there to have this trial, the Jewish leaders, before they took him to Caesar. And it says, a servant girl noticed Peter in the firelight. This is on your outline. And she began staring at him. So they were outside. It was cold. Had a little fire going. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. Man, he didn't say, I don't know. No, I didn't follow him. He said, I don't even know him. I don't even know the guy. Peter spent three years of his life living and following Jesus, was one of his best friends. And Jesus picked somebody, somebody who blows it, just like you and I blow it sometimes. But he didn't give up on him. He didn't quit. Notice what the disciples were doing. The day of the resurrection, they, only, only the women saw, you know, saw Angel at the, at the tomb. They met Jesus on their way back. They told the disciples, a couple of disciples saw him on the road, but they hadn't all seen him yet. It says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. You underline that phrase? Meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. You just saw your leader go through a mock trial, at false accusations made up, and killed in one of the worst ways imaginable. I think it's probably, I, I think it's probably a smart idea they were meeting behind locked doors. I mean, I probably, I probably want to lock the door into deadbolt too. You know, I'd be afraid. They were afraid. They were hiding from the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Yeah, he probably freaked them out, man. Do the hokey pokey, okay? He said, peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. And then look what he does. These guys who all abandoned him, ran away, they're hiding in fear. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He commissions them again to go on this mission to multiply. And the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to uh, over 500 people over the next 40 days. And I'm pretty sure 
if I was executed and killed and God raised me back to life here on this earth, like three days later, I'm pretty sure I would let my mom know I was okay and my brothers and sisters. I probably would let I'm, I'm pretty confident Jesus' family was among that 500. I know the disciples were among that 500. I don't think these people would, because we're going to see that these disciples began to boldly preach about Jesus in the same streets where Jesus died, where he was led away to die. On your outline, there's a quote from Peter Kreeft. He said, liars always lie for selfish reasons. If the apostles lied, what did they get out of it? Misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. I mean, why would you want to sign up for that if it wasn't true? And I don't know how many of you remember uh, Watergate. Some of you are a lot younger. You maybe studied in school and Richard Nixon had to resign. But man, when I was a kid, that was, that was terrible because it interrupted my kids' TV shows every night, <laughs> every day. They were just preempted for months, just dragged on and on. But, you know, the country was mesmerized by this story. And, and at the center of this conspiracy and everything that went on was a man named Chuck Colson. He was, he was Richard Nixon's right-hand, like, hatchet man. He did all Richard Nixon's political dirty work. You didn't want to get on his bad side. And when everything fell apart and these guys got arrested, something happened to Chuck Colson. And he repented. He received Christ. And he became like a hugely influential Christian leader. Kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. He became this Christian leader. Listen to what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. (laughs) How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. Most of them were executed for their faith. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie consistent for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. He changed his life. And he believed. And, you know, Jesus is alive. He changed the lives of his family, of his brothers, of his disciples, of those who began to follow him. And they began to preach in the streets the heart of the message. This is number three, the heart of this message. They began to preach that Jesus is alive. And if you'll read through the book of Acts, you'll see over and over again, they, they make a really big point about Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Now, I want to remind you, Jerusalem was like the capital of Israel, Judea, what was left of Israel, the, the, the southern kingdom. They were under the Roman government, but they had some autonomy there. Jerusalem was like their Washington, D.C. That was the place of power, the political power under the, their uh, religious leaders. This is where Jesus was when he was uh, publicly, you know, the streets were full of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He was whipped, spit on, crown of thorns. They gave him his cross. He had to walk through the streets of Jerusalem with this cross. Now, I want you to understand that less than eight weeks later, less than eight weeks later, the Holy Spirit came. The disciples started preaching in those same streets to many of the same people, the people they were hiding from before. Less than eight weeks later, they were willing to stand out in the street and preach what, what they were so afraid of before. Because they'd seen Jesus. Their lives were changed. And we're going to see what they preached in Acts in just a few moments. But I want you to hear from someone 
who Jesus has changed their lives today. I don't think it's just people in the Bible, but Jesus continues to change lives. So Brenda Spinola, would you come on up? Would you guys welcome Brenda? She has a... She has a powerful story to share with you. It's, it's not easy to get up here and, and share your heart, but I want you to hear the proof of the resurrection in her life, that Jesus' is life. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you. I'm Brenda Spinola. Um, let's pray for a few seconds. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask you to give me the courage to speak the truth of my life and what you've done through me. And Father, I ask you to bring your Holy Spirit over this room and into every heart to touch them and just to tell them the truth about their self and you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was born to a very young and poor couple in Portland, Oregon. He was 21 and in the Navy, and she was barely 20 years old. I quickly, they had uh, six kids all together. Um, during my childhood, my dad was deployed on ships for months and even years at a time. I barely knew him. I did not have an easy childhood. I was unsupported and lost in a large family. When I was just four years old, my 16-year-old uncle molested me. I didn't tell anyone about it, but instead I lived silently, dealing with the confusion and pain. Just a year later, at five years old, it happened to me again, but this time it was my older brother. This would become a pattern that went on for several years. I missed and longed for a father's love. I spent much of my younger years feeling empty and not knowing how to deal with what I was feeling or where to turn for help. I consistently felt miserable, rejected, and unloved. This period of my life started me out on what would become a decades-long journey to fill the void within me and to find a cure for my loneliness and emptiness. As I got a little older, I realized that I could use my appearance and my body as an easy way to get the things I wanted. I would let boys objectify me and use me as a means to get their attention. To me, this was the closest thing that I could get to feeling love. I'd give in to their desires, and for a moment, it would feel great, like I mattered and like I was loved. But those good feelings very quickly faded away, and that familiar, haunting emptiness would return, and sometimes even stronger than before. My adolescent and teenage years were marked by similar patterns, of self-destructive behavior, promiscuity, eating disorders, self-loathing, cutting, drugs, and alcohol. And many of these patterns continued throughout my whole life until just three years ago. I continued to make terrible choices that always led me headlong toward a brick wall one after another. I would just plow full speed into it and then do my best to pick up the pieces afterward each time expecting things to be different. It was a seemingly unending cycle of misery and pain. At the height of all my loneliness and addictions, my father died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And shortly after that, my youngest sister died in a motorcycle accident. My family was coming apart at the seams. I was married and divorced four times, and have two children, one that I was forced to give up 
and another that I've kept and raised. I did the best I could to try to be a good mother, but I was living trapped within my own severe dysfunctions, and I was often swallowed up by pain and lack. I didn't know how to deal with all the past hurts and hang-ups. With my last husband, the cycle continued. I had met a person who was as damaged and angry as I was. Together, we were toxic. Neither of us had the tools we needed to make that marriage work. But let me tell you, some good things emerged from the ashes of that failed marriage. Number one is, this is how I met God, right here at Crossroads Church. My ex, uh, I grew up in a family that didn't pray. We didn't talk about God. Uh, We were very secular what you see is what you believe and so my ex eight years ago my ex asked me if I wanted to go to this church that he had met this really cool pastor who invited him to go to church and I instantly said yes it was as if all my life I had been waiting for this invitation it's hard to explain but it just felt completely right Like, I was hopeful that I would finally meet God. I knew all my life that I was chosen by God and that there was a God. And because there was this longing in my heart for going to church and finding out about God. And just knowing that there had to be something more than this empty life that I was living. One day, I was sitting right here in this room during a weekend service. And I decided to give my life to Jesus after hearing these words that have now become my life verse, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Uh, come, to you, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. This was so attractive to me. I could lay down this heavy garbage bag of crappy childhood, crappy choices, and crappy life, and I could rest. I would love to say that my life changed completely when I accepted Christ as the Lord of my life. But I was so stuck in my selfish ways that it took so much more to actually make me seek out solutions to my hurts, habits, and hang-ups. When my marriage fell apart, Crossroads Church rallied around me. Pastor Duane suggested that I check out a Celebrate Recovery program. I had never heard of it. I had to face, so I went, and I had to face my own dysfunctions, my wrong behaviors, And admit them to myself, to God, and to others. This is how I got healed from the shattering childhood traumas and the lack of a father's love. Working through these issues one by one with God and my godly girlfriends has not been easy. And at times, I was tempted to give up and to slide back into the old me. But I trusted Jesus to bring me through it. And in these years, I've gained a confidence, a lucrative career, true friends, 
a true relationship with God. And I've been able to let go of so many of the bad habits, hurts, and hang-ups that I had. I will admit that my life is still full of challenges every day. Work struggles, financial challenges, family dysfunctions. Struggling, I'm now struggling through a very ugly divorce of three years. But through it all, now I can hear the voice of God telling me that I am loved. He reminds me that he alone has control over my life. And if I let him, he will take my broken pieces and make something beautiful out of my mess. In every struggle, I turn to God, never away. He keeps me safe and secure, and I know he's standing right beside me through every dark valley, just like he promises. My days are blessed, and I now understand that the love that I searched for in all those dark places for so many years was just really my heart yearning for my true Father's love through Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Brenda. And I, I can look around this room, and I know many of you have stories where God has changed your life, and he's changing your life, and he's working in you. And so the number one reason I believe the resurrection is because of the way, the, the fact that how Jesus' family changed, how the disciples changed, and how people continue to change today when they meet Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, what does your life say about the resurrection when people look at your life and they see how you're living are you living surrendered to god in a way that would make people pause and think what is it that makes that person different why are they changing and god wants us to share this message about his life and his resurrection let's look at part of peter's message there in acts chapter two what did he preach as we uh, kind of wrap up what does god want us to do with this what did peter declare First, one of the things he says, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Peter stood up to everybody in the street and said, you guys saw all the miracles. You saw all the amazing things God did, that Jesus did, that God enabled him to do, how he healed the sick, raised people from the dead, the lame could walk, how he loved people, he touched the leper and healed him. And they, they saw all these miracles. But so many of them refuse to believe. And people are just like that today. They see miracles, but sometimes you don't want to see what's right in front of you. You don't want to see what's right in front of you. It's like, it's like this old guy. He was, he was a duck hunter. He couldn't wait for duck hunting season to start. And right before duck hunting season, his, his old dog died. And he was so disappointed. He, looked, he went online. He bought a new dog. He went out hunting. Wanted to try this new dog out. He's training him. He gets out there on the river, hiding down in his little... Uh, duck canopy hiding thing and he's down in there his duck blind and they see the ducks and he fires and sure enough he gets a duck and his dog races off into the river but his dog doesn't sink his dog just runs right across the water grabs that duck and brings it back guy's amazed he's rubbing his eyes can't believe what he just saw there comes some more ducks bam he shot another duck his dog runs runs out there again doesn't get wet doesn't sink down just his paws are wet runs across the water grabs that duck this guy's so excited, he's found the best bird dog ever. He can't wait to bring his old buddy out. So next day they come back out to go hunting again, and he wonders, is my dog going to, you know, do the same thing again? They shoot a duck. Sure enough, his dog takes off and doesn't sink, comes running back with that bird in his mouth. He's all excited, looks over his friend. His friend doesn't say a word. 
Guy's kind of bothered by that. He shoot a few more ducks. Dog runs out, gets the ducks, brings them back, never gets wet. His friend never says anything. They're riding home. This guy's so excited. He's so frustrated, though. His friend didn't notice. He finally hits his dog and he goes, did you notice anything different about my dog? His friend said, yeah, he can't swim. <laughs> I mean, some people, some people, it doesn't matter what you do. They just don't want to see the miracles in front of them, right? Peter said, you guys saw it, but you, you saw what Jesus did, all these signs and wonders from God, but you refused to believe. And in verse 23, he says, but God knew what would happen. God knew what would happen in his prearranged plan. God had a plan through everything that was going on. His plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. We are all witnesses of this. This is what Peter's standing out in the street to the people who had Jesus crucified. He says, you, you, you nailed him to the cross. You did it. And you know what? Peter's speaking to us too. We nailed Jesus to the cross. Because of our sins, because of our disbelief. He died, he went to the cross because of God's plan for my sins. To pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins. Not only the physical pain Jesus went through, but he bore the guilt and the shame and the rejection of our sins. He felt all of that because of God's plan to bring us back into a relationship with him. And Peter was so bold. He was so bold. And what should we do with this? You know, I didn't put fill-ins here on this part. I just want you to underline a few phrases. Maybe you want, if you want, you can write number one, two, three, four, because there's a few things here God wants us to do. First thing Peter says as he continues to preach, he says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Can you underline that phrase? Let everyone in Israel know. God wants us to let other people know. He wants us to share the news. He wants us to multiply. That's one. That's one thing we need to do. You know, so often it's hard for us to share our faith, even to invite somebody to church. We're, we're a little embarrassed. We don't want to make anybody feel pressured. We don't want them to think we're some kind of weirdo or anything like that. We're just, I mean, we're just afraid. And yet we don't face the kind of opposition that, that Peter was facing. He could have been dragged off and put in jail and crucified too. He was eventually killed for his faith. You know, and here in America, we still have the freedom to share and invite, but we're so nervous about it. It's so hard. We, you know, our culture is a little different. We don't stand in the street and preach to everybody. That would be a little weird, and you might get run over, but we don't do it, we don't do it that way. But, but God wants us to share with people we know. And there, he wants us to speak, be, speak up. If Jesus is really alive, if he's changed your life, we need to be telling people about it. I was a pastor in Uganda back in 1973. Maybe you remember Idi Amin. He was one of the worst dictators committed uh, mass uh, genocide and he hated christians and there was this young pastor named kifa simpangi he had seen terrible things he'd seen a face of a christian burn so badly he couldn't recognize a person anymore he'd seen soldiers cruelly beat a man for his faith and he'd heard the sound of soldiers breaking christians bones under their army boots all for the crime of being a christian but on Easter Sunday in 1973, he went down to the soccer stadium in the town there, and he preached to over 7,000 people who were brave enough to come out. 
And after the service, he was going back to his church, and he noticed that five of Idi Amin's secret police were following him back to where he was going. They came into the church behind him. They pulled out their guns. They pointed them at his head. And the captain said this to him. He said, uh, we are going to kill you for disobeying Amin's orders. If you have something to say, say it before you die. Simpangi thought about his beautiful wife and his little girl, and he began to shake. He was so afraid. But then he said he remembered. God reminded him that he was with him, and God gave him the courage to speak, God's spirit in him. And here's what he said to these five policemen holding guns at him, these secret police. Do what you must, he said. The word of God says that in Christ I am already dead, and that my real life is hidden with him in God. It is not my life that is in danger, but yours. I am alive in the risen Lord, but you are still dead in your sins. May he spare you from eternal destruction. Well, these five policemen, they just stared at him like, finally the captain lowered his gun and he said, will you pray for us? And Sampagni did. And those five officers were converted through the witness of this young pastor. They became his protectors rather than his murderers, his executioners. He spoke up. And we don't face that kind of, I mean... I don't think anybody here is going to get shot for inviting a neighbor to church or invi- sharing your faith with a coworker or letting somebody know that Jesus is alive in your life. So we're to let others know. Second, it says Peter's words, verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. That's the second thing you need to do. Underline that, repent of your sins, turn to God. It means you say, I'm sorry, I know I was wrong, and I want to do what's right. I want to turn away from my way. And then number three, be baptized. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Go public, take a public stand, declare it to, your, to the church for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you receive Jesus, God will send his spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. And I just put, put the dates of some key classes coming up. Maybe you're here And you're just not even sure about the whole Jesus thing. You have some doubts. You have some questions. You don't understand. What does it mean to have a relationship with God through Christ? I'm so glad you're here. That's why we're here. I hope you'll keep coming and asking questions. But I also want to challenge you to take some time. Take about an hour of time next week after the Saturday service. Come to the Follower Christ class. And sit and listen and think about it. Maybe if you have some questions you can ask. You have some things that aren't clear to you. But come and check it out. Is this real? And what does it mean? If Jesus is alive, what does it mean? How do I receive him? How do I connect with God? Some of you, you have Jesus in your life. You know that Jesus is alive. You're forgiven, but you've been disobeying because you've never taken the step to get baptized. And maybe it's time to go public and get baptized. And we're going to have baptism in a couple weeks. And you can sign up for that on your card as well. And do you know, when you get baptized, it's one of the easiest times to get somebody to come to church. You invite somebody to come to church, you're like, I don't want to go hear some guy I don't know talk for a while. Talk, you know, I don't know those people. Oh, but if you say, you know what, I'm getting baptized and it would mean a lot to me if you were there to support me, if you were there for me. And people come all the time to baptisms who don't know Christ. And God sows some seeds and he waters and he does some things in their life. And then some of you, you're, you're following Christ and you, you've been baptized, but you know, you're kind of like, you come to the services, which is important and you get encouraged, but you're really not in the game. You're really not functioning during the rest of the week as part of the church family. And I'd encourage you to come to the membership class and check it out. What does it mean to be a member? What does it mean to step up and do your part in the body of Christ? 
I believe when God brings, if this is your church home, if this is your family, I don't think God puts you here by accident. He puts you here because this is a good place for you to grow and be encouraged. But he also puts you here because we need you. The Bible says we're a body. He has a function for each one of you to do, a way for you to serve and give back, whatever that might be, a way for you to, to step up. See, here's what happened. Peter preached this message. Look what happened. They multiplied. It says they went, it says they went from a few hundred to look. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. They went from a few hundred people to 3,000. Because Peter stepped out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He shared this message and people responded. And God wants to do that today through us, through different ways that we communicate with people in our culture. And he's calling us to multiply, to grow. And he wants you to be added to the church. He wants you to commit and do your part. Well, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing patience and love and mercy and undeserved grace for us that you would send Jesus to die for us. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus alone, he came, and he's the way to you, God. And we believe today that he's alive. We see him at work in in our lives and in other people's lives, and we see you at work in the world. And God, we're asking you to stir up our hearts, to empower us, to motivate us, to convict us when we we get lazy or complacent. God, help us to be busy about doing the task you've given us to do, to spread the message of a risen Savior, of Jesus, of someone who will love and change someone's life forever. God, help us to know what it is we should do, how we should respond. Help us to have the courage to step out. Lord, I, I pray for each and every one who's following you that you'd continue to grow them. Help us to surrender to you. God, I especially want to lift lift Brenda up to you as she's in this journey and she's courageously shared her story and I pray you continue to heal her and grow her and use her and multiply her her story, God, many times over through the people she shares with. And Lord, just we want to offer our lives and our hearts and our church up to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.